0: We know that uh, the American evangelical movement has been a powerful uh, force in politics. We're probably going on 30 years now. But it used to be that while the, the church itself and evangelicals as a group were politically active, you could be reasonably assured that when you sat in a pew on a Sunday morning, you weren't going to get a political sermon. Uh, you were going to get something that came out of Scripture. Well, that's, that's changing. And uh, there are a lot of forces at work here. And Tim Alberta, best-selling offer, staff writer for The Atlantic, uh, former chief political correspondent for Politico, has written about this in a new book called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in the Age of Extremism. And we've got Tim in the studio this morning. Welcome home.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Great to have you here. Uh, You grow up, your dad was an evangelical preacher, pastor here in, in Metro Detroit. When he passed away... You had a moment that was kind of uh, certainly, I'm sure, painful for you, but also was an awakening of sorts. Tell me about
1: that. Yeah, that's right. So so my dad had been the pastor of uh, Cornerstone Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Brighton. That's where we grew up. And, you know, the church was our, our home, our community. And, um, you know, my mother was on the staff at the church, too. So I would literally grown up, f- like, physically inside the church. And um, this was our family. And so when my dad died... I had been living in Washington D.C. at the time, and I came home for the funeral and uh, was expecting to do funeral things, you know, mourn and cry and
0: have the congregation wrap its arms yeah, around you, because, have a lot of hugs and yeah,
1: <laughs> and yeah, and uh, and I did get plenty of that. Don't get me wrong, but um, there were also any number of folks in our congregation who f- used that as an opportunity, saw that as an opportunity to litigate some political differences with me. Um, I had just written, as it happens, uh, my first book about Trump's takeover of the Republican Party, and I'd been pretty critical of Donald Trump for for his rhetoric and his behavior. And so there at the wake with my dad in a box, uh, 50 feet away or so, any number of people wanted to have it out with me about Trump, about politics, about the deep state. Uh, And, you know, it was... Sort of surreal, and obviously really shocking. But as you said, Guy, I think also just an awakening in the sense that, boy, oh boy, like you have a sense that maybe something's off, and that, and that, you know, and, and that you understand in the abstract that there may be a problem here with some with 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 political extremism infiltrating the church. I knew that from my own professional work, but to have it come home like that and, and to to feel it so personally. Um, it was a wake up call and it, and it, and and in many ways it was sort of a call to action.
0: The separation of church and state, is that just
1: like thrown out of the window now? We've heard that for years, but it's not necessarily like that anymore. It's a great question. I mean, well, well, let's be clear. Uh, There is an ascendant movement in this country now, uh, The terminology is open to discussion. A lot of folks will use the label Christian nationalism, and I'm not afraid of that label necessarily, although I think it's important to define our terms. But let's be clear. You you have this movement of well-organized, very influential folks who have every intention of demolishing the wall between church and state, who are not being shy about their ultimate aims. They have they have signed their names onto manifestos mm-hmm. they have talked publicly they are advocating for an agenda that would effectively make christianity the state religion of this country and that would uh i would just add to that if you think i'm exaggerating it's no accident that twice in the last month donald trump at campaign rallies has talked about this idea of no longer allowing anyone to enter the country unless they are a christian essentially imposing a religious litmus test on any migrant coming to the United States. Now, that is unconstitutional. And
0: how do you enforce it? Are you going to have that put on your identity card? Do you have to profess
1: your religion? It's a great question. Mm-hmm. I, but but let's be clear. Uh, you know, this is the same former president who, one of his first signature acts in office, imposed a ban on Muslims entering the country. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is this would be not entirely unprecedented. It would be different in degree, but not necessarily different in kind. Mm-hmm. And and I think the important thing to note here is that, you know, Donald Trump in many ways is an empty vessel around these things. He is not he is not a, an ideologically supercharged individual. He is not himself someone deeply invested in the, the causes of Christian nationalism. But he is surrounded by people who are and they see him as a vessel to advance some some proposals that are in many ways unprecedented in the sweep of the relationship between church and state in this country
2: tim in this book you have dozens of interviews conducted over many years and this is something that i've thought about a lot this these religious people who who make um excuses for corrupt allies it's just interesting to me you know what i mean like they they follow someone who you probably wouldn't be friends with or 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 surround yourself with
1: correct I think that's right. Um, yes. If if you you know, I, I've made this joke before with just friends and family like, you know, we grew up in a middle class family in a middle class area. And if someone had swaggered into our local breakfast spot with with a fancy suit and tie, uh, making demeaning marks or uh, demeaning remarks towards women mm-hmm. and towards minorities and. Um, just acting in ways that were sort of uh, rude and inflammatory and just mean and hostile, I think we would have shown that person the door pretty quickly. But if they're running for president of the United States, apparently there's an exception.
0: There are people out there that would say, though, that the reason that evangelicals and Christians in general have become more politically active, they see this as an existential threat. They think that their religious freedoms are under assault from the left. Witness the orchard owner in East Lansing just recently won this uh, sizable verdict uh, because he was denied a stall at a farmer's market because on his own property, at his own farm, he said, uh, look, I'm, I'm, I, will, I will serve everybody as a customer. I just can't do same-sex weddings here. It's a violation of my religious tenets. They see things like that as being an existential threat. So why
1: wouldn't they get
0: politically active?
1: It's a it's a great question. And And let's be clear that two things can be true at the same time, right? The first thing is that from the viewpoint of a culturally and politically conservative evangelical, Yes, the culture has changed and it is moving away from them. There, there's no question that if you were just to sort of survey the country sociologically, you would see that uh, the country today is not the country 50 years ago, right? During the heyday of the moral majority, when there was the beginning of the, the alarm sounding around a secular, progressive takeover of our institutions and indoctrinating our children and the rest. That is That is certainly true. What's also true is that if you are a Bible-believing Christian— you are taught over and over and over again to prepare to live in an environment that is hostile to you and you are not only taught that you are to live in a way that is countercultural and to be prepared to deal with um enemies so-called enemies in the culture who are sort of coming for you but you are taught and commanded to treat those people with the utmost respect with grace, with love. In other words, you're judged not... What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And you're mm-hmm. judged not by how you treat your comrades, not how you treat your fellow Christians. You are ultimately judged by how you treat the outsider. I mean, that that is the that is not only the example of Christ. That is the example of Peter and of Paul and of all of the, our older brothers in the faith who showed us... By the way, living under brutal Roman occupation in the 1st century Rome context this you know what we're dealing with in America is not exactly the same thing.
0: All right. We'll continue our conversation with Tim Alberta just ahead. We're having a, a fascinating conversation, in my opinion, Yes, <laughs> yes with uh, Tim Alberta, <laughs> best-selling author, uh, staff writer for The Atlantic, former chief political correspondent for Politico, and also um, a homegrown product of the evangelical church. Uh, grew up in the church. His father was the pastor. He had a, an amazing awakening. He was uh, kind of an agnostic, uh, his father was, and then uh, had an epiphany uh, one day, uh, an experience where he heard... Uh, the voice of God and and found this as his calling. Uh, Tim has written a a book called The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in the Age of Extremism, which explores this intersection of faith and politics. Tim, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was um, we have seen politicians for years wear their faith on their sleeve Um, and as a way to connect with voters. It's a shared experience. Donald Trump has become the new vessel in faith of of an evangelical political leader, even though there are certainly others out there that (laughs) have documented their faith journey much more than Donald Trump has. If he's had a faith journey at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh,
0: how how do evangelicals reconcile that when you've talked with them for this book, that this is quite an imperfect vessel, to say the least.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting, Guy, because when you trace the arc of Trump's relationship with many of these white evangelical leaders, they would tell you eight years ago that they were really uneasy with Donald Trump. In fact, in part, in large part, because of what you just said, that this is not someone who sits in the pews with them. This is not someone who you know, manifestly shares their values. He was
0: pro-choice until just a few years ago. Lifelong
1: pro-choice, Planned Mm -hmm. Parenthood donating, Democrat, right? Not active in the church. Parading his mistresses through the tabloids, owns casinos, right? So this is someone who, you know, Scripture says you you will know them by their fruit. This is not someone whose life would would seem to show fruit, at least not the fruit that we as Bible-believing Christians are taught to look for. So what's interesting when you trace the trajectory, however, of that relationship, you look at Donald Trump and you think about his moral shortcomings, you think about now the indictments and all, all all, of the legal trouble that he's in, and you come to realize that for many of these evangelical supporters of his, they are sticking with him not in spite of those things, but because of those things. And here's what I mean by that. In the last segment, you were you were asking about the sort of persecution complex among a lot of Christians in this country right. who feel under siege, who feel targeted by the government, who, who wonder if their time is next, that, that the church is going to be in the crosshairs. And they see Donald Trump as someone who, because he's not a good Christian, because he's not bound by biblical virtue, because he doesn't have to play by their rules – then he can do the dirty work for them, in other words, the they, ultimate warrior the ulti- they think that the barbarians are at the gates, and maybe they need a barbarian to protect them and So mm. Trump, in a strange way, has become almost this protector figure figure for a movement that feels it needs protecting now I, I would just add theres all sorts of issues with that you know morally. Theologically, this is not okay, but that is the justification. That is the rationale for supporting Trump among a lot of these folks. Tim, if there was not a Trump, uh, would this book still have been written? Boy, that's a good question. Well, I, I will say this. I think Trump obviously looms large. But as I write in the book. I think really the inflection point here was COVID-19, because what you saw in Michigan, obviously, Mm -hmm. and in states across the country, was you saw governors come out and issue these shutdown orders that implicated houses of worship. The reason that's so important in the evangelical context is that if you grew up in this tradition, you've been taught your entire life that one day the government is going to come for the church. One day the government is going to shut down houses of worship, and they are going to coordinate an effort to abolish Christianity in public life. So when COVID-19 comes along and Gretchen Whitner, Whitmer and Gavin Newsom and the rest of these governors issue these shutdown orders, for a lot of these evangelicals, they looked around and they said, "Well, here, it, hot, is. here it is. Uh-huh. It's their uh-huh.
0: biblical prediction come yeah. to it's life. It's a prophecy. prophecy, it's a prophecy, prophecy. fulfilled,
1: yeah. right?" And mm-hmm. so and so that that helps to I think that helps to illuminate this sort of apocalyptic response inside the church and, and the fractures as a result of it. You had churches, Lloyd, where people were attending for 20, 30, 40 years and then they disappeared overnight. Mm-hmm. They went to a new congregation down the road that didn't shut down because suddenly the the litmus test in these churches wasn't whether your doctrine and whether your theology is in line. It's whether your politics are in line. And that is the new standard in a lot of these houses of worship.
2: Uh, this has not happened in my church, but what of the worship experience? Politics have come to the pulpit and it came to your father's funeral. And like, that's just not the experience we go to church for.
1: It's not. And, and, you know, look, there's a supply and demand dynamic here. So when I talk about you have big chunks of these congregations that are defecting almost overnight over the last few years, and they're going to new churches, those churches are tend to, and I write about this at length in the book, these are churches that have essentially turned their Sunday morning worship services into low-rent Fox News segments, where the pastor has traded his pulpit for a soapbox. I've been in churches where, on a Sunday morning, for 30 minutes, it's conspiracy theories, it's headlines from the news that week, it's telling your people how they need to be voting in the upcoming election, and then, if you have time, there's a couple of hymns and a couple of prayers. (laughs) But can I tell
0: you, though, that I've I've experienced the exact opposite coming from the left, in the pulpit. And I think if you if you're not there for that, you don't really care which spectrum it's coming from it's not what i'm seeking when i come to worship that's
1: exactly right and guy i'm glad you pointed that out listen i've gotten any number of people who have said to me well how how come you're not writing about the progressive church how come you're not writing about the black church i mean the, the, there there is a rich tradition across the ideological spectrum of politics invading the church and my answer to that is very simply i did not grow up in the progressive church i did not grow up in the black church my faith tradition is the one that i'm trying to focus in on here and by the way On January 6th, I didn't see members of black churches marching on the Capitol. I didn't see a lot of progressive churches uh, bussing in their congregants to to march on the Capitol. What we see now as a real threat to our pluralistic society is an ascendant right-wing militant Christian nationalism. And for whatever the problems are in these other faith traditions, and there are plenty of them, I don't necessarily view them in the same context as mine. How large is it really, though, Tim? That's a great question. So quantifying it is a struggle what we see in the polling suggests that anywhere between 25 and 30 percent of white evangelicals will either sympathize with or identify with personally the Christian nationalist cause. That being said, I've been in churches all across the country for my reporting, and what I've seen pretty consistently is pastors will tell me, Look, our congregation has fallen into civil war, it's a complete mess, we're falling apart, and yet. There's really only in those churches where it's worst case scenario, they'll say it's only about 20 percent that have really been radicalized. It's just that the 20 percent, that fringe is vocal, vocal. they're organized. And and so we're seeing
0: that on college campuses, this idea of this anti-Semitic rhetoric and that you presume that because they're so loud and they're so dynamic that they They speak speak for everyone,
1: the student body. That's not the case. No. And listen, I mean, we see this in politics. I mean, my first book was about Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. And in many ways, this is a mirror image. What you're seeing now is that a vocal, well-organized and well-financed fringe can very quickly hijack a mainstream that is sort of complacent and lethargic. And so we're seeing the same thing happening now in churches. I don't think it's anywhere near a majority that's actually radicalized. But I think the 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 majority in this case in the church truly is silent, and that and that is to their detriment.
2: Well, we saw that in Congress too. The the vocal few stopped Kevin McCarthy, and it took fifteen votes, and then mm-hmm. all that stuff. So yeah, yes.
1: yes, similar.
0: Yeah. Uh, if you can hang around, we 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 were going to say goodbye to you here, but I'd love to get your take on the twenty twenty four campaign, sure. the Colorado verdict yesterday, and also some of the most recent polls showing young people defecting from Joe Biden. I'd love to get your Thoughts on that as well. Tim Alberta, a political reporter, author, but also a child of the evangelical church. And his book is uh, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. I know they were so, you were sold out on Amazon, which is a good thing and a bad thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's, right. That's, that's right. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a good marker uh, and something to brag about, except people can't buy your book.
0: Yeah. Have they restocked yet?
1: They have. Just as of yesterday, they restocked.
0: Okay, good. We'll continue our conversation with Tim Alberta. You're on Jr. Morning.
1: We're with Tim Alberta, best-selling author,
0: a staff writer for The Atlantic, a local guy who has seen a lot of politics, both local and state. He's a, a father. Uh, kids are uh, going to school in a, in a Christian school. Uh, still very involved in in the evangelical community that he has witnessed changes. in. I want to just pivot to the this Colorado decision that came down yesterday, this notion that uh, the 14th Amendment, Section three, that this was an insurrection and that as a result, uh, Trump's kicked off the ballot in Colorado. It's going to go to the Supreme Court. What do you think is going to happen?
1: Well, it's going to be interesting because uh, on the one hand, obviously, uh, Trump appointees to the court, you know, Barrett, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, they're going to be the votes that probably decide this, and um, on the one hand, what these folks have shown uh, pretty steadily is an inclination toward a a sort of a more traditionally conservative uh, uh, jurisprudence, which is to say that they are siding with the right, but that is not to say they're siding with Trump. They're, they're, they're siding with the Federalist Society. They're siding with your more sort of traditionally constitutional arguments on the conservative originalist side of things. They have not gone sort of full Trump on the bench. I mean, we, we saw, for example, in the aftermath of the 2020 election, when the Supreme Court unanimously dismissed this this Texas lawsuit that was attempting to disenfranchise voters in a number of states that Biden right. had carried, including Michigan, including. Michigan. So I, I think um, this is going to be a, a really important case symbolically for the court. My sense is, however, when it comes to the substance, that there's very little chance that they are going to rule to disqualify Donald Trump. Uh not because of a partisan agenda, not even because of an ideological agenda, not because of favoritism towards Trump. I think that John Roberts has shown as chief justice on the court that he is deeply concerned with Institutional legitimacy. Mm-hmm. He has. Uh, so, you know, if you look at his votes on the Affordable Care Act and fealty to, to precedent and fealty to president. And, and, and I think and that's precedent, not the president. But, right. Uh, <laughs> but so, so if you look at just Roberts alone and, and how he has tried to steward the court, I would be stunned. Frankly, if 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 you saw the court side with Colorado in this case, the the long story short, I think this has very little chance of advancing and of keeping Trump off the ballot in 24. But the Colorado State Supreme Court here talk about precedent. They have now opened a can of worms that we're going to be dealing with.
0: Well, what do you think about those on the left? Those that scream any time a a Republican will propose um, election security or election integrity, uh, you know, promote something like that. They'll say, well, that's disenfranchisement. You're denying access. Well, you're this is election interference writ large in the, in the minds of many voters. And I would think even s- some civil liberties types.
1: Well, it's a tricky thing, right, because there are starting with J. Michael Luddig, the, the, the esteemed uh, conservative uh, justice who was on the short list to become a Supreme Court um, justice himself. He has led the charge writing in my publication, The Atlantic, along with a number of other conservative legal scholars that, in fact, Trump should be disqualified from the ballot. So there are there are compelling arguments to support what the Colorado State Supreme Court just did. However, I think to your point, Guy, uh, not not even on the legal front as much as on the political front. Right. In a country right now that is so deeply polarized, that is so deeply fractured along these partisan fault lines. This is going to be perceived as an illegitimate attempt to disenfranchise them and an illegitimate attempt to keep their champion, Donald Trump, off of the ballot through sort of extrajudicial means. And so... I think it's dangerous just in that sense. What we saw on January 6th, I think, is probably not the worst case scenario. I think there's a very real likelihood that we're entering a period of of civic unrest and and political violence, that it's going to be uh, nothing like we've ever seen in our lifetimes. And episodes like this, I think, could contribute to it in the minds of a lot of people who believe that we're sort of approaching Armageddon in America.
0: Uh, abortion hasn't been a, a, a great subject for the Republicans. How do the evangelicals play into to that subject, especially as the election gets closer and closer? You know,
1: it's fascinating. This is something we haven't talked enough about, but this is going to be the first post-Roe v. Wade presidential election in America. And And what's really important to understand from the evangelical perspective is that you have, the data shows us, that you have... Tens of millions of voters over the last 20 or 30 years who have identified basically as single issue pro-life voters, that they hold their nose and turn out to vote for the Republican nominee for president because Supreme Court seats are hanging in the balance, i.e. abortion law in America is hanging in the balance. But now with the Dobbs ruling and Roe v. Wade falling, abortion is defederalized, it is thrown back to the states. In other words, abortion is no longer a federal issue. It is no longer a motivator in a presidential election. You're much likelier to see high turnout in state elections mm-hmm. when there is a ballot initiative around abortion than you are now at at the federal level. So I think there's really an open question of for, for these millions of single issue pro-life Conservative voters who do not like Donald Trump and who are appalled by his behavior, but who felt the need to vote for him just because of the abortion issue. Now that it's off the table, do they stay home? Did they leave the top of the ticket blank? Do they vote for a third party? Any meaningful uh, any meaningful slip among those voters is going to make the math very difficult for Trump next November.
2: We have, you know, just about a minute or two left. Do you think this third party, no labels? could get some traction and actually work?
1: You know, I I think it could. And obviously the big question is whether Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, ultimately winds up running on the no-labels platform. I think the other thing that uh, we, we should be paying very close attention to is spoiler candidates. Now, in 2016... Donald Trump won the election, if you look at just the raw numbers, because Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate, siphoned away enough votes from Hillary Clinton for Donald Trump mm-hmm. to win by very narrow margins in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Fast forward to 2020, there were no spoiler candidates. And then that allowed Biden to win by very narrow margin in those same states. This time around, you have Cornell West. You have um, Robert Kennedy Jr. and uh, now potentially Joe Manchin. So those third party candidates are going to scramble the equation here in ways that we don't really know. Does it hurt Trump more? Would it hurt Biden more? It's not clear at this point. What is clear is that you are going to have voters in a lot of these battleground states who are probably going to be just casting protest votes, not wanting to support Trump or Biden. Mm -hmm. And that's going to that's going to bring our margins way, way, way down.
0: Just 60 seconds left. But as you look at the erosion, whether it's young voters, independents, that Joe Biden is experiencing right now, his team said, well, it's, it's the bad messaging. We Our message has been bad. Is it bad messaging or at the end of the day, is it just bad policy that he's paying for?
1: Well, sir, well listen. It can be both. And I think uh, like the Bidenomics branding is is like political malpractice. I think people in the White House have finally recognized that trying to attach your name to a struggling economy uh, is probably not a great idea. And so the White House is now backing away from that. I also think, listen, the polling on this is clear. Among Democratic voters, they do not want to see Joe Biden run for president again. They want him to step aside. He promised to be a bridge. He promised here in Detroit with Kamala Harris on one side and Gresham Whitmer on the other back in 2020 that he would be a bridge to the next generation of Democrats. And I think a lot of the Democratic base Took, the, took, took him at his word, and now they feel betrayed in some sense, and they're desperate to see fresh blood in the party. That poses a real threat to turnout for the Democrats.
0: Tim, Alberta, it's been a great conversation. We appreciate you stop, uh, stopping by. Have a wonderful holiday with your family here at home.
1: Thank you, guys. Same to you. Thank All you guys right. for having me.
0: And we invite you to join us tomorrow at Startup Nation, our first annual holiday celebration here on JR Morning. The movers, the shakers, and a lot of fun. We hope you'll join us for that tomorrow at 6. All talk is next.